Welcome to C3 Church The Bukit. We believe Jesus Christ gives life to the full, and we are called to live it and share it. We pray you enjoy this message today. On the 6th of May this year, King Charles's official coronation will occur. Paid by the UK government and described as one of the biggest royal events of our lifetime, the coronation events will span over the course of an entire weekend. So as per royal tradition, King Charles will be crowned with St. Edward's crown. This crown is made up of nearly two kilograms of gold and a variety of stones and precious metals and has an estimated value of $57 million. The Archbishop of Canterbury will conduct the solemn religious service of King Giles's coronation on the morning of 6th of May and there'll be roughly 2,200 people in attendance. This will be televised nationally on the BBC and largely around the globe. The following day, Sunday the 7th of May, a special coronation concert will take place at Windsor Castle. This will be broadcast also. And I quote, the concert will bring global music icons and contemporary stars together in celebration of this historic occasion. There will also be a special lighting up the nation segment, which will see the country join together in celebration as iconic locations across the UK are lit up using projections, lasers, drone displays and illuminations. There will also be what's called the Coronation Big Lunch, which will take place on Sunday. From street parties to garden get-togethers, neighbours and communities across the UK are invited to share food and fun together. Now, whilst figures have not been made public, the estimated costs for King Charles's coronation weekend are in the vicinity of $100 million. And this is in light of Charles declaring he wants the event to reflect the current cost of living and make savings where possible. <laughs> now, whatever your opinion of the royals, the monarchy, or any event related to pomp and ceremony, those descriptions of Charles's coronation likely won't surprise you. Now, may frustrate you, <laughs> appall you, or on the other side of the coin, utterly disinterest you. But the ceremonial fanfare significance of this coronation won't surprise you. Because we've been conditioned to expect that when it comes to kings and queens, this sort of ceremony is to be expected. Now, I want you to hold that imagery, that sound, that sense, I want you to hold that in your imagination as we return to today's passage that has just been read. So yes, I'm juxtaposing here. So friends, today is Palm Sunday or Passion Sunday as it's sometimes called. Now, a day if you grew up in a more traditional church experience like I did, it is a day that you probably know quite well. Like me, you may remember dressing up in costume in children's church whilst you watched some poor boy perched on the back of another poor boy who was crawling on his hands and knees pretending to be a donkey, whilst the rest of us said Hosanna, whatever that meant, whilst they paraded down the middle of a group of children. You may recall making or receiving folded like origami palm leaf crosses, just like in some ways our own kids are doing in Life Kids this morning. Or none of those memories may be in the least bit familiar to you, but that's okay too. But today is that day. It's the sixth Sunday of Lent, 
and it's the final Sunday before Easter. Now, Lent is that period that begins on Ash Wednesday and concludes on Easter Saturday. And so Palm Sunday today is about commemorating and celebrating Jesus's triumphant entry into Jerusalem, as we've just heard read in Luke. And it's an event that's not only recorded in Luke, it's in all four Gospels. And so not only that, though, this Palm Sunday event actually signposts what is called Holy Week, the week leading to Easter weekend. Now, wherever you sit in your faith expression or faith experience or how you've perhaps practiced or participated in things previously, I want you to recognize and come on a journey with me of actually what the bigness of this day and this week represents in the Christian calendar. So I want to add in some imagery, add in some adjectives to maybe thicken our understanding a little bit as we base in that scriptural passage. Now, interestingly, Eastern Orthodox tradition describes the Lenten period, describes the lead up to Easter as a bright sadness. Hmm. Why a bright sadness? Well, because we are anticipating both grief and victory simultaneously. We are confronted with images of Jesus's death on one hand and yet his glorious resurrection and ascension on the other. It is a both and space, a brightness and a sadness. It is that mysterious paradoxical space. Now, I just want to stop here and call that out. I actually believe that for many of you in this past little while, maybe you've actually been sensing and feeling a bright sadness. Maybe you've not been able to give it language, but maybe you too have been feeling that sense of both victory and grief, lament and joy. Holy Spirit has perhaps been doing a work in you and that maybe gives you language for where you are. So, A bright sadness is the day and this period that encompasses this leading up to Easter. And in fact, a bright sadness, friends, embodies much of what is our faith and discipleship pilgrimage. It's also a bright sadness, though, that earmarks the events of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Now, whilst the scriptural passage has the subheading triumphant entry, Let's not miss the sadness and the complexity also in this passage. We see in verse 37 that, yes, the crowds are shouting Hosanna. Yes, there is some fanfare and some joy and some triumph. There is a surging joy within the crowds as Jesus makes his way through the streets of Jerusalem. Yet it is that same Jesus in the same timeline who doesn't wave a regal hand or start a little jig or burst into song. In those same movements of brightness within the crowd, that same Jesus in verse 41, upon seeing Jerusalem, weeps. Now let's be careful with that word, right? This isn't just a little tiny, teary, carefully delicate cry. To weep is a loud public expression of emotional lamentation. 
Now, contrary to what some people believe, this is Jesus weeping not because of what's facing him in terms of his crucifixion, but it's an expression of anguish and sorrow of the city of Jerusalem, its people and its nation. He's longing for peace. He's lamenting. He's in anguish and sorrow over that whole space of a people that are longing for peace or a people who don't even know that they're longing for peace. So bright sadness encapsulates this whole story here. So let's hold the lens of bright sadness in our hands. And now let's return to some of the other adjectives, some of the other thickening here that we see of this moment. Because I want to show you here that what we have is quite an absurd representation of Jesus as king. This is Jesus's coronation moment. And yes, absurd, let me show you. The king, hmm. So let's return to that passage. So it tells us that upon going up to head to to Jerusalem in verse 30, Jesus asks that two disciples go into the village and find a colt, which is a young donkey, tied up there and to bring it to him. Jesus is to use this donkey because it actually affirms the prophecy of Zechariah 9. But let's not miss the absurdity here, right? Jesus is asking the disciples to go borrow a donkey, not purchase a donkey, not lease a donkey, but borrow a donkey. Furthermore, verse 30 tells us that this donkey, this colt, is one on which no one has ever sat. So this donkey is not only borrowed, it's untamed. Now, my horse knowledge is pretty limited, but it's certainly not outside the realms of reality for us to assume that an untamed donkey is not altogether the most easiest of transport choices. And so, yes, the disciples do as they're instructed. They find this donkey, and then in verse 35, it tells us that they throw their cloak on it after they've brought Jesus, brought it to Jesus, and they set Jesus on it. So Jesus is assisted, now helped onto this donkey, this colt. No saddle or no bridle. At best, they threw a cloak over it because it was all they had in the moment. The disciples hadn't come prepared with their horse riding kit. And then they are to help Jesus get on. Let's recap. So here we have a large, fully grown man now sitting on top of a small, less than four years old donkey that is untamed and borrowed. Not only is he sitting on there, he is there is assistance required for him to get on this donkey. That's how Jesus marks his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. That's his coronation moment. Now, yes, I understand that this event is confirming scripture and there's a lot of prophetic imagery and symbolism embedded in this. But it still strikes me as rather absurd that that is how our king earmarks his coronation moment. Now, if you don't believe me, just do some YouTube foraging around people getting on donkeys. So if we now contrast that to King Charles's upcoming coronation, whilst we may be annoyed by that, whilst we may find that trivial, we certainly don't find it unexpected. 
Jesus, on the other hand, his coronation moment is rather unexpected, absurd even, because it goes on, right? Moments later, that same Jesus tells the people that it's okay to praise him because even the stones will cry out if they don't, verse 40. And then to top it off, in verse 41, he bursts into tears, weeping, as we mentioned earlier. But in fact, if we go on to verse 45, here we say Jesus driving out those in the temple. Most translations actually refer to Jesus's anger here. And this event is often earmarked as the Monday of Holy Week. So did we catch that? Let's recap. A weeping man on a small, untamed, unbridled, borrowed donkey is welcomed by leaves because that's all they had. That is what God chooses to select to make this his Jesus is King moment. That's the ceremony of our Jesus and Lord. Crowns, you see, that are worth $57 million and three-day festivals and sabres and lights and illuminations and clean clothes and community dinners and poised faces and stages and chairs and thrones would seem to make far more sense. So yes, today marks the start of Holy Week. Yes, it has some ceremonial significance. Yes, today is the final Sunday before Easter. But what does it actually mean for me and you here and now? It confronts me with the king. It confronts us with our king, the king. Our king who is radical, unexpected, and even sometimes apparently absurd in what he does. You see, Palm Sunday is a moment for us to stop and consider. Does my theology my experience, my faith pathway actually make room for this donkey riding Jesus because that's the invitation of today. And friends, maybe in this season you have felt that, wrestled with that. Maybe you have a growing sense of uncertainty or maybe dis-ease because Jesus maybe hasn't shown up for you in the way you expected. Maybe he hasn't spoken to you in ways that feel familiar. Maybe you've been out there looking for a king wearing a $57 million crown, but he's actually right in front of you, perched on a borrowed donkey. And friends, that may feel a bit grindy as I say that, but it's okay, right? This sense of wrestle, this sense of coming to terms with our king, we're actually in like-minded company. They're scattered throughout the scriptures. But let me just pick up on one that's maybe a little bit more surprising. If you turn to John 1, 29. The next day, John, and this is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming towards him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Now, right here, we have John the Baptist with no hesitation declaring Jesus is who he says he is, the Lamb of God, the one that John the Baptist has made way for. And yet, a year later, that same John the Baptist is in prison. Now, by this time, he has seen the actions and the behaviour of Jesus 
as Jesus' ministry has spread. And John the Baptist, as he's in disciple in prison, he asked one of his disciples to go to Jesus and ask. And this is what he tells him to ask. Matthew eleven three. He says to say, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Now that's quite a different mode there, John the Baptist. In other words, John has moved from, yes, Lamb of God, to, who are you? Are you the one that I thought? Now, in my current Lenten book, 40 Days of Decrease by Dr. Alicia Cole, she describes this event. She says, somehow Jesus' actions were not matching John's expectations. And that distance between what John thought Jesus would do And actually what Jesus did was straining John's certainty of who Jesus was. In this sense, Lent came early for John. John experienced in prison later what the first disciples would experience throughout Jesus' ministry. And so friends, this is the opportunity, the quite confronting opportunity embedded in this bright sadness, because we are confronted here with the king, a king that we are to ask ourselves, can I actually follow him to the cross? This is the signpost of Holy Week, a signpost of renewed willingness, of renewed surrender. Because if we look then how Jesus responds when this comes to him from John the Baptist, Jesus tells the disciples to go back and tell John this. He says, say that I've been doing these works and I've been performing these miracles, but then he finishes with this phrase that he says to tell John in Matthew eleven six, bless is the one who is not offended by me. Wait, what? Jesus says our blessing is attached to us not being offended by him. Does that mean maybe that sometimes his behaviours or words may actually appear offensive? That if we're not discerning or wise or mature or willing to seek wise counsel, that the word of God may actually be offensive? Yes, sirree. The Amplified would say that same, that same verse like this, and blessed, joyful and favoured by God, is he who does not take offence at me, in brackets, accepting me as the Messiah and trusting confidently in my message of salvation. But Em, I'm not offended by Jesus riding on a donkey to Jerusalem. It's a bit weird, but it doesn't offend me. Okay, but maybe what about the other ways that maybe Jesus is working in your life? or trying to get your attention, or knocking at the door of your heart with, or the wise counsel that you're maybe ignoring, or that conversation you've shied away from, or that behaviour you need to start or stop. What about those things? Blessed is the one who is not offended by him. 
our, our king calls for our in offence, to stare in the face of sometimes what is uncertainty, obscure and absurd actions that don't make sense, to stare in his face and still give him our all, to give him our entire lives, our worship, our surrender. Palm Sunday confronts us with the king. Okay, as I round this out today, let's just look at the other secondary characters embedded in this passage. We have the king and then we have the crowd. Now, the crowd are aware that this is a significant moment in time and they're grappling with the image of who is before them, who is walking the streets of Jerusalem. And so they do the best with what they have. They lay cloaks on the ground, it tells us in verse 36, almost like a red carpet to create a processional concept. They grab whatever they can find, palm leaves, and and yes, there is this sense of that they symbolise peace and victory. They're overcome with joy and they begin to rejoice and praise God, it tells us in verse 37. The crowd is caught up in the spectacle. They're delighting that the king has come. And whilst some of what they're doing, what some of Jesus is doing is unexpected, they're they're in this surge. They're like borrowing each other's joy and assurance. They're in that big atmosphere of joy and proclamation. Now, that same crowd, or at least some of it, we are told in verse 48, then go on to hang on Jesus's every word as they're absorbed and inspired in his teaching and revelation in the temple. Now, what does this show us? So, friends, this crowd isn't abstract. This isn't made up of inhumane kind of figures. This is crowd as a group of people just like us. We are the crowd. You see, we we can easily borrow from each other in a corporate gathering and be inspired and lift our voices in prayer and and praise and worship. We too can hang on Jesus' every word because his teaching is clear and he's behaving in a way that makes sense, that feels comfortable. But let's bump down to Luke 23, 18, 23. But they, the crowd all cried out together, away with this man and release us to Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they, the crowd, kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they, the crowd, were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. Within the same week, friends, the same week of praise and then reverence, the same people, the same crowd move from a posture of praise to a posture of loud, demanding, urgent, crucify him. Dear God, the crowd is fickle. Dear God, so are we. How often do we do this, friends? Myself included, how often do we move from a posture of faith to a posture of fear, to a posture of humility, to a posture of pride, to a posture of joy, to a posture of anger? 
because we get so caught up in ourselves and our head and our idols. We're swept away in Jesus not behaving in the way that we would like him to, or is that just me? And it can be easy for us to look at that and go, well, of course, the crowd's fickle. The crowd barely know Jesus. Their faith is underdeveloped. They're childlike. They don't have an intimate walk with the Lord. (laughs) Well, you can spend a bit of time in Luke 22 to actually see that there is a whole nother character here who betrays Jesus, a whole nother man who walked intimately with Jesus for three years, who loved him, who saw him right up close, whose posture shifted in a very short space of time to I love you to I don't know you at all. And that's subheaded with the painful Peter denies Jesus we see in Luke twenty-two fifty-four. So such is the bright sadness of this triumphant of Lord and King. Friends, we can be the crowd. We need to be aware of our fickleness. We need to reflect with startling honesty and say, Holy Spirit, convict me, because Palm Sunday confronts us with the crowd. Hmm. So M, upswing here, please. Yeah, I hear you. Where does that leave us? Okay. So firstly, we've got to lean into bright sadness. Secondly, we need to get used to that Jesus is often absurd, even offensive, sometimes completely uncertain in his behaviour and actions and words. Thirdly, we need to get used to and continually repent for our startling fickleness. But finally, what do we need to do? We need to heed the call. We need to heed the call. The call to you today, friends, is don't be beaten by a stone. Verse 40, Jesus says, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would cry out. Our only response is praise. Our only response is help my unbelief, Lord. Our only response is you are king and I am not. Friends, Holy Week. This week leading into Easter, it is full to the overflow of the paradox of our faith, of a bright sadness, of an unexpected king who wants our heart. So let's be those who don't turn our backs inside a week. Let's not be those who are quickly offended by Jesus' actions. Let's not be those who must understand before they can serve. Let's give Jesus our praise and honour because he deserves nothing less when we've got nothing but a leaf and a dirty cloak because I do not want to be outdone by a rock and I know you don't. He is worthy of all our praise. Let me finish by reading Psalm 72, verses 11 to 9. May all kings bow down to him and all nations serve him. For he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is the blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold from Sheba be given to him. May people ever pray for him and bless him all day long. May corn abound through the land on the tops of the hills. May it sway. May the crops flourish like Lebanon and thrive like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. 
may it continue as long as the sun. Then all nations will be blessed through him and they will call him blessed. Praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvellous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Thanks so much for joining us today on this podcast. We hope you are inspired with this message. For more information about our church and our program, please visit c3thebookit.com.